Hello and welcome to The Kenyanist, a show where we seek a deeper and broader understanding of the social and political issues that Kenyans face. I am Kamau Wairuri. Kenya's food culture is dynamic and evolving based on both local and foreign influences. On the local front, we know that different cultural groups in Kenya have their own foods and unique ways of preparing it. This diversity also makes it difficult for us to talk about a Kenyan cuisine in the same way that we might talk about an Ethiopian cuisine, for instance. And as some arguments go, we can, we can trace the state of our food culture to colonization. Some people argue that colonialism limited access to food, but also popularized some foods, including maize and legumes, which diminished local cuisines. And this is said to have had some serious effects, including malnutrition, poor feeding and poor health, coupled with other factors such as drought. That being said, there's one region in Kenya that has distinguished itself on the food front, and that is the Kenyan coast. It is a very popular food destination. The cuisine of the Kenyan coastal region that we might call here the Swahili cuisine to some extent, is the result of a confluence of multiple influences, including Indian, European, Arab, and Chinese cultures. And in a way, it stands as an outlier in the Kenyan food scene. To help us understand the historical and sociocultural context of the food culture at the Kenyan coastal region, I am delighted to host my good friend Maria Sudi, a social scientist based both at the coast and in Nairobi, and a good friend from our university days to the Kenyanists. Maria, welcome to the Kenyanist. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Recently, you published an article um, that is titled Food Culture at the Kenyan Coast. Um, and of course, for my sake, from the days that we used to sit um, outside Saifa Hall in the University of Nairobi as we were taking our, our degrees, um, I'm very curious to understand how did you find yourself um, writing about food in Kenya? It was proposed to me. Uh, it wasn't something that I came up with. It's also something that I was very interested in having spent uh, a few months with my son in Malindi. And it just felt very different. A lot of the atmosphere around food and mealtime was very different from what I was used to in Nairobi and in Gong in particular. So it was quite a challenge. When you're talking about food, there's not so much written history about it when it comes to the Kenyan context in particular. So it was a bit of a challenge. That's interesting. So basically, it's you went to the coast, experienced this, and you were like, mm. especially given your Luya roots. And I think we tend to talk a lot about Luyas and food as well. So like, how does that come into, into play? I, I must admit it's quite different because uh, in the coast, rather in Malindi, uh, you realize that food is eaten to be enjoyed. There is a lot of sugar in food and there is a lot of oil. There is a whole functionality to food when it comes to Luya food. We don't necessarily eat to enjoy. I'm not saying our food is not nice. It's actually nice. It's enjoyable. But it has a function. 
it's nutritious. Uh, you eat, it fills your stomach, it enables you to go uh, about your business and till the land, take care of cattle, etc., etc. That's it. It's not necessarily for enjoyment. So there's no, it's not, I don't know if it's the right word to say, it's not dramatic. Eat your fill and move on. That's it. But then you come to the coast and especially dinner is, it's like a wedding, literally, because there's, there's so much to sample from. There's so much on the menu. It's not just ugali, uh, veggies and meat. Or, do you understand? There's, there's so much. It's not, and then this is the other thing. It's not like a Western cuisine where, you know, you have your, um, what is appetizer and then the main meal and then dessert it's not restrictive you're literally taken on a journey in one setting you these sweets and sweets and sweets oh my god i keep i keep saying that when i go to the coast i can't lose weight like there's no way to lose weight apart from the heat the amount of food that you keep eating, because the food is really nice, so you keep eating, you keep you keep indulging. In the morning, you have an array of food that you just want to take a bite. You want to taste this and this and this. It's not limited. In Nairobi, um, unless you, you eat sausages or eggs, your breakfast a lot of times consists of bread and tea. That's it. Basic. Get to the matatu, go to work, do your thing. So it's very different. In Nairobi, you can limit yourself because you, you have your two slices of bread. If you want to top up a few things, that's fine. Then you have coffee or tea, and that's the end of the story. But then in, in the coast, you have mahamji, you have viazikarai. Besides tea, you don't have to drink tea. That's the thing that I, I like about it. You don't have to drink tea in the morning if you don't want to. You can have your coffee in the afternoon. It sounds like it's very interesting combination of like your love for food because it, it's obvious that you really enjoy the food and also your very strong sociological instinct of like ah this is something interesting there's something cultural here let me let me try and understand a little bit and you know um which is a good background for actually writing writing on your work but I want us to go a bit now to the question of cuisine, because as I was saying in the introduction, we really do not talk about a Kenyan cuisine per se, even though we do talk about, say, for instance, like an Indian cuisine, even though India has a lot more diversity, so to speak, right, compared to like cultural diversity. How do we determine when a food culture becomes a cuisine? In my opinion, what we lack is the traditions and rituals surrounding food. You can say for Luya's, all, again, Bukusus in this instance, we sit down and we eat. There is, no, there is no ritual. There is no, this is what the men do while the food is being prepared. This is what the women do. It's just the women cook. That's it. The kids sit and eat. That is what hinders us from going into the whole of, you have Luya cuisine. A lot of times people will say Luya food. Also, at the same time, you don't necessarily have different foods being designated to different mealtimes. With Swahili cuisine, you can see it's very obvious, even with the Western cuisine. But with Luya's, we basically just, you'll eat Ugali at lunchtime and you'll eat it 
in the evening, there is no such time for having some meals. But when we look at other cultures, there is the set time, there is the family rituals. People even sit together. It's, it goes beyond family. It's Mealtime is a whole function on its own. I, I think, in my opinion, that's the reason. Are you saying that there's a certain threshold of variety of food you need to cross for your particular kind of food culture to be considered a cuisine? Because I mean, when I when I think about the Kikuyu people, for instance, and we are we are somehow not taken to be <laughs> to be serious when it comes to food, and I think you can almost tell what is being eaten in, in in a large majority of the Kikuyu households by what you see being served in in weddings and funerals and other kinds of ceremonies, right? So basically, um, you know, what people call irio, which I understand to be like mukimo of minji, peas with potatoes. And then we can use different kinds of beans for that purpose. Of course, we have gideri, which then can come in different forms. We have pilaunjeri, so everyone makes, makes fun of. And of course, now we also do ugali and, you know, with basically beef stew and sukuma and whatever. And it, it almost feels as if basically by the time a week is over, you've kind of ran out of options. In fact, sometimes you may not go through a week until you are repeating some of the basic dishes. If I think about the culture in in, in the UK, and, and I could be totally wrong about this, but it's like, by the time you are done with mashed potatoes and chips and rice, with some kind of stew or maybe during the winter there are pies. Okay, maybe the variety is a bit more. But is that is that what you're saying? That when the, there's like a wider variety of foods and there's set up and a ceremony around it, then we can talk about a cuisine, which is something that's lacking when we say food is just for a particular purpose. You eat because you're hungry and then it enables you to go on with life. There's no an appreciation, a broader appreciation of what food means at, in, in a social sense. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I mean. You've put it into a context. When you look at it, let me speak of my community. I can speak of other people. We don't have breakfast. Our breakfast is what the white man gave us. So we have bread. So when it comes back to our community and what we would describe at breakfast, which is not necessarily breakfast, we have sweet potatoes, we have yams, and then what do we have? Tea, black tea or tea with milk, because a lot of lawyers don't drink coffee. And that's just that I don't know why. That's just a thing. So you see, by the time you're getting into day three, you've run out of options. And uh, also depending on your settings or your your location, you don't have one of those ingredients. So if you're in the village, yes, you can have access to bread, but is it all the time? It also depends on season, because what if you run out of sweet potatoes in the season where there is no sweet potatoes? What are you eating for breakfast? So we don't necessarily have that. The one thing I will say about uh, Luya's, we have a wide range of vegetables. We cannot run out of vegetables. The vegetables are many. Of course, not all of them uh, are eaten to be enjoyed. They're very nutritious. They've served up. See, again, it comes back to functionality and nutrition. 
it serves a purpose. It allows your kids to grow stronger. It allows for you to go and farm and take care of cattle. But that's just it. You don't necessarily, unless there's a ceremony, let's say a funeral, a wedding. And then that's where we, we got introduced to certain cuisines like chapati, and which we still make fun of until now that it's supposed to be the food that you eat during Christmas and during ceremony. So it's not, see that again, that's the thing. Even if you introduce um, those cuisines, those foods that you learned from other communities, by week two, you're done. So you have to go back to your 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 initial food. Then you we don't have a set time for food. So we, we don't have, oh, this is dinner, and then this is lunch, and then this is brunch. I don't, I, I don't want to blame it on colonialism only. But we just, I think we just gave up and we decided we're going to eat and we're going to live and we're going to survive. That's it. Well, we have a strong drinking culture. So <laughs> where food doesn't work, then uh, we substitute it with, uh, with gin and tonic. I would want to hear a, a broad overview of the history of Kenyan foods because you've mentioned colonialism there. What would you say is the broad history of of Kenyan foods, what are the key things we would need to understand to know how we have ended up in the situation where we are at at present? It was colonialism. Colonialism changed how Africans eat their meals and what used to work for them. So all of a sudden, the foods that allowed you to survive in the environment that nature put you in were not there. For example, in Tanganyika, scotch earth policy that's a lot of foods that were destroyed the introduction of diseases that made sure some of some of these foods just went extinct i would say colonialism you have to start from colonialism and then you can go down to drought and farming there is the idea that because of the nature of colonialism like within the central kenya region in particular a lot of the ways that Kikuyus used to make food and how food was preserved, we lost a lot of that that culture because a lot of men, for instance, were taken into detention camps and, of course, many others were killed. The women were, and those who were not, even the men who were not taken into the camps, were put in villages, right? So basically they were put in, basically as a form of detention camp. Um, anyways, because you are taken away from your farm and put in villages where you had a curfew. So you had to leave at a particular point in the day, come back at, at another you know, particular point in the day before, before darkness. And the problems this causes are massive because you don't have, and you still have to work on the white man's land because you have to pay the hat tax. So you have to actually provide labor. But then you still have to find time within those restricted hours to go and till your particular piece of land so that you also have a harvest because you need to feed your family. And this, you know, fell a lot on women. Therefore, you have to innovate. And one of the ways to innovate is by coming up with something like Giveri, which requires very little intervention 
as it's cooking. So you will leave the pot on the fire so it can be cooking during the day. And if there's a child who's maybe as old as 10 years who's being left at home, they have the job of just adding water to make sure that, that the food doesn't burn, right? So in a sense, you then end up with this mongrel of a dish which is not really particularly enticing, but it serves a very particular purpose in that you can feed your family while also having to deal with all the other problems that you have to face, especially time poverty, which is one of the things that colonialism actually instituted and perpetuated. It's interesting that even in the post-colonial period, the post-colonial cultural situation does not change the time poverty dynamic for women. And especially, I don't know whether I can talk about that for other social cultural groups, but again, within the Kikuyu population, because women still have to do quite a lot of work. So finding shortcuts for providing food for the family becomes this thing that has been perpetuated and continues to persist even after the colonial period is, is long over. Now, you're making a very interesting point because I don't think we appreciate just how much our ancestors or our grandparents, not even ancestors, because we were literally colonized like 60 years ago, had to deal with. Because I remember a particular story my grandma was telling me, there was, uh, I don't know which hunger or famine period, where kids were very hungry that they had to be fed alcohol, busa. So you'd feed your babies busa or there's that residue that comes from busa. So it will fill their stomachs So until the next day. We have to appreciate the fact that the reserve areas made it very difficult for it's not only the time, but you also didn't have large parcels of land. We, we have to remember that the schemes, the schemes that came up, came up post-colonial Kenya era. So before that, people had very minute parcels of land. So what are you going to put in your land? It's something that can sustain your family. It's something that is able to survive drought. And it's something that you can be able to cook. Now, what you're saying about Githeri is the same thing in Luyaland. We call it Kamaengele. A lot of maize with very little amount of beans. And it's not fresh maize. It's that stored maize, which is really hard. So it is kept on the pot from morning. And the kids can go to school because, of course, kids had to go to missionary schools and all that. And when they come home at lunchtime, they would have something to eat. And the guys who are going to the farms would have something to eat. The guys who are going wherever it is. Of course, you have all these dynamics that the family has to work with. What you said about women still carrying the burden is, is true because, again, post-colonial Kenya era ensured that for most people, especially on the countryside, could not survive in the village. The land was very little. There was no tax, but there was basically very little you could do with the land. And a lot of the folks just realized for you to survive in the new world, you have to take your kids to school. So the kids are going to school. If you're going to school, where are you going to end up in? The urban areas. If you're going into the urban area, you're moving with your wife. So it's just one person, your the husband and the wife, and starting a new life. So what are they going to cook? The wife's mom did not have time to sit down and teach her because they're basically surviving. So when you're in the city, you're still going to cook what you saw your mom cooking. Again, 
when you're coming to the city, there's the whole segregation. So you don't, you're not exposed to a wide range of the food you'd like to eat. So again, you're, you're surviving because you have to go work in parklands, you have to go work in westlands, you have to go work in industrial area. So it's those limited things. And because the income is very low, we have the first generation of women who also have to work outside the home to sustain the house because the husband's income is not going to pay rent and all that. So what we might look at as tradition is not necessarily, it, it is tradition because it, it has been passed on, but it, it would not necessarily be the Kikuyu culture per se. It's just because it's been passed on, that's what they've learned. And because that's what they've learned, they passed it on to us. So we just eat what is there. And so a lot of the foods that maybe uh, our ancestors used to eat based on their environment and their economic activities they were doing, and which also allowed them to kind of wade off some illnesses, were lost to us. So if you're in the city, what are you eating? You have to eat bread. You can't eat. Where are you getting sweet potatoes from? You have to go all the way to the countryside. For I, I can speak for lawyers. Um, in the 90s, going to the countryside to, to even just visit your parents took a lot of time. So you cannot just wake up and say, I'm going to the countryside to get sweet potatoes. It just didn't make sense economically. What we have, we have a food culture, yes. But then that food culture is very strongly shaped by our historical experiences. And I think there you make a very a very strong point. And, and the, the, the point I got from reading your paper, which is that actually it is true that by looking at the way we eat, we can learn a lot about our own history and the factors that have shaped our present day experience. Let's now talk about the Swahili cuisine, which, which is the focus of the analysis in your paper. In the paper, you say that Swahili cuisine ranges from the simplest to the most intricate of dishes, catering to a wide palate. The mix of cultures, ingredients, and cooking methods has produced a wide variety of signature foods. And I just wanted you to give us a feel or an overview of examples of some of these foods that you're saying, you know, ranging from the simple to the complex and, and, and how they relate with the palate. What I particularly like about Swahili cuisine is because it's like this pot of different cultures. That means that for whatever taste you have, whatever, like, your palate, no matter how different, depending on where you come from, you'll always find, and because the, there is just a wide range of food that is set on the table for you, you can't necessarily be a picky eater unless you're a hater. That's my, that's the thing I say. You'll always find food that works for your palate. You'll always find food that is tasty to you, that works for you, unless if you're allergic to seafood, there's meat. If you don't like gluten, for example, there's always potatoes. They don't just give you the potato as it is. There's so much you can do with one type of food that it just caters to different palates. Like when you have the fish, they can fry it. The samaki wakupakwa. And then there's different things you can do to the fish. There's different things you can do to, to the chicken. So depending with how you like your chicken, I know personally, I don't like wet fry when it comes to chicken. So 
there's deep fried chicken. I'll I'll get deep fried chicken. I'll get chicken that has so much chili. I can't taste the that. There's there's a certain smell that comes from chicken I don't like. So the the spices will hide depending on your food and your taste and the texture that you want from the food. You will always get it on the table, and that is what I like about it. So, what does the food at the coast tell us about? the history of the Swahili people. It tells you that the Swahili people are actually, number one, that they have a very distinct history, which fascinates me, which is different from, uh, let's say, my community, in that some of these recipes were passed on in the house. So what that tells you is they have a very communal setting. Not to say that guys from my community didn't have that. Of course, we know it was disrupted. A lot of it was disrupted due to colonialism. I kind of think the advantage the Swahilis did have was because of the whole segregation. What worked for them was the guys who especially came, lived the Swahilis, the Swahilis as a group on their own, just the coast in general, the guys that were descendants of Arabs, Indians, because of segregation and the way it worked, it kind of worked in their favor. In that, they were the merchant class in Kenya, if, if my history serves me right here. Yeah? So what that does for you is it allows you to live with your family. It allows you to decide how you, like the colonial government is, I'm not saying it's lenient, I don't want to be taken out of context, but in the way that it couldn't work for the guys in the countryside, it allowed for them to maintain those extended connections and families could work together. The women could be at home while the men were trading. And so some of these cultures uh, and the recipes could be passed on orally because everyone, I, I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't find evidence of written uh, recipes which is very distinct because that was the that was the question uh why why are the swahilis able to pass down their recipes while the rest of us just lost our recipes and the answer which i didn't put in the paper i came to realize like i didn't come to realize it it's just now that we've had the conversation it comes to surface is there's a very distinct uh pattern in the countryside you could not learn from your mother, you could not learn from your dad because they, they were not at home. Everything they did was decided by the colonial government. So there was no way of passing Nyambura passes the cuisine to Jerry and Jerry passes it to Wangoi. It was just not going to happen because most of them were merchant families. They were able to kind of live in the same area. And we can see this also with the Asian community in Nairobi. And that allows for a lot of these traditions not to break. On top of having your new traditions, because, yeah, some of, let's say, the Indians were coming from India, so they have to kind of find their way around. They were also able to bring their families. So what, the knowledge that was that was there, maybe with your great-grandmom in India, was still able to be transferred to you through your aunt, through your uncle. But you see, for... The rest of Africans, you don't have that. You don't have a situation where, let's say, my mom was sitting uh, in the evening next to, to her aunts and her grandmom cooking. So all her knowledge was based on what her mom 
passed down to her. And her mom could have forgotten a lot of things. Oh, that day she was very tired, so she decided to just give a twist to the food. So the recipe is very different. In the course, there's a given standard because I feel like if this person made a mistake, in my opinion, then there was the aunt to step in and say, no, 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 you don't do this, you do this, you add this, this is what you add. So those, it allowed for oral history to thrive because if you have like five people who remember the same thing, the, the corrections can be made. But if I'm, if I'm the only vessel that is, that is carrying my family's history, you are rest assured that my children is go- are going to have some form of twisted history. I'll not pass everything down. Their memory loss happens, of, of course, fatigue and everything. Not only do they have the ability to create elaborate kind of food options, but that actually they have also the ability to pass it on and that forms part of the heritage. But I think the other thing that's that's also coming out strongly in your paper is the influence of other cultures on the Swahili cuisine. So you talk about Italian, Indian, and other kinds of influences to the cuisine. Can you talk about how the interactions of the coastal population with other cultural groups has also contributed to shaping that cuisine. The environment plays a large role because it mirrored a lot of the home environments for most of the groups that were coming to trade. And some would just decide, okay, fine, I'm going to settle here. There's Omanis who have homes in Kenya, in Mombasa, and they have homes in Oman. The link is not broken. Just because the coast was the first point of contact, it meant that a lot of these groups would form trade towns. And unlike the trade towns, let's say in the interior, which would happen maybe after when after a specific period because of all the traveling that had to be done, at the coast, the ships were always docking. So there was regular contact. So, so let's start with the Portuguese. Of course, the Portuguese brought um, foods like maize, And then we come down to the Persians and the Arabs and Indians. And then later on, the Italians came to Berlin in 1967 because of the space center. And some of them, after it's the the same thing that happens when foreigners go to different countries and some of them decide to stay back and some of them decide to go. Of course, if they are staying, then they're also introducing their cuisine. And the good thing is folks are... It's not like today where you can't travel with seeds, etc., etc. Folks were able to import. If they couldn't find it here, they're able to import it and grow it. So um, it's, the foods are introduced. And of course, uh, with the introduction, of course, of course, with different Islam, basically, because it's the dominant religion. So you have the Omani culture coming down. You have uh, the Persian culture coming down. And if you can see it on the doors, you can see it in the style of architecture. Of course, it's going to come down and trickle to food and and the family setting. So I want us to now move to the question of gender. Um, of course, we have we have highlighted a little bit about gender dynamics already by talking about especially the time poverty of women and, and what that means with respect to, uh, you know, to the cuisines and, and how people prepare their food. 
And in your paper, you you say something very interesting about gender dynamics, where you are discussing this couple that that's doing the business of of making and selling mahamri, and you highlight the division of of labor. I would want you to tell us a little bit about this division of labor, and also tell us how representative you think it is of the broader coastal society. They used to go to Huda's place. I still go to buy breakfast. So what I notice and from our conversation was an, an observation basically well of course because because i didn't sit with the husband you would see that he will take part in kneading the dough and uh sometimes talking to the customer like getting money from the customers he would be in the kitchen and the back kitchen helping one thing i would like to point out is swahili cuisine has also enabled a lot of swahili arab coast women to have their own income. I, I don't know if people pay attention to that because many of them are stay-at-home mothers. So this allows them to play the role of, I'm a mom, but I can also bring in some income. And in case my husband is not able to sustain us 100%, I can sustain them. And then the funny thing is they sell out. If you go at 10 a.m. for to buy breakfast, you're not going to find anything. And she could have made like a thousand mahamris and they're all sold out. Guys just flock in and buy. So you can imagine how much she makes. She makes without leaving her house. What Swahili Cuisine has done for the women is it has allowed them to create their own space within the working environment while maintaining their culture and their religion obligations if that plays into the gender gender dynamics um men don't necessarily always help of course it also depends with the couples and if the person is nice a lot of these these things just come down to a person's characteristics and stuff but for most part from my observation is within the home the husband and wife were basically equal when it came to household chores and, and all that. So you're saying Huda, who's making these mahamris, so she's being able to to tick so many boxes with this, but and the husband is there to help. It's not necessarily the case that this will be seen and replicated across the coastal region. When we talk about the Swahili women, and I, I'm not so well versed with the particularities of the Swahili culture itself, but I do know that in the coast, you know, the coast has some of the most troubling gender issues, especially around the women, women rights questions. Just to be clear, you're talking particularly about the Swahili women, or does this expand a little bit broader? To be clear, I'm talking about the Swahili women, the ones that I interacted with. Of course, when you travel then to the interior, there are different dynamics. When you're looking at other things like violence, then the whole gender issue really plays out. Outside the home, Everyone has to play their part. You have to play your part as a woman. You have to play your part as a man. We had this discussion with some of my friends about how sometimes women can be financially empowered. Yes, they they earn an income. But then what people forget is that leads to a whole issue of then these women being financially abused by the men in their families and even just normal family members 
they take advantage of the fact that she's earning this amount of money and then like she's earning a lot of money which should be able to sustain her and take her out of poverty etc etc but she's unable to do that because then she is her money is taken away or the whole banking aspect of it she's not keeping the money someone else has to keep the money for her but i know for the most part let's say in lamu i know the men traditionally or culturally the men are supposed to go bring the food they literally go to the market and buy the food they buy the ingredients and then they bring home and then the women cook so it's still some sort of division of labor so that the food can come to the table that's very interesting and it's to say there's a lot of dynamics that unfold and and i like that sometimes what we see in public is not what there is in private so that people may be may be doing their fair share of work in the in the household and maybe maybe sharing labor but when they go outside in public then they have to put up this performance because they need to conform to certain gender expectations so of course food culture goes beyond the sourcing of ingredients and the cooking to also include the consumption of food and one of the things you are you are highlighting quite a lot here is the tradition of communal dining any kenyan who's traveled to the coast or who has been to swahili eateries knows this idea of communal dining but which is a bit odd to some of us who grew up knowing you get your plate with your food and then you eat what is on your what's on your plate tell us a little bit more about this aspect of communal dining in the family setting outside the family setting and what that tells us about the culture at the coast i think part of the reason that communal dining works for the coastal communities is due to the environment it's usually very hot so the weather allows it you're not going to do communal dining outside in Kericho in the midst of tea farms it's just not going to work and uh it's very cold people are not going to trek from their homes every day to come to your house to eat it just doesn't make sense and also the way again back to colonialism because of house tax you people basically just maintained like one hut you had the hut tax so you maintained one hut you are not going to come to have like 10 hats for your kids and then so that you can all be a community blah 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 that one had to go out the window so that you sustain yourself um with the little pennies that the white man was giving you but in the coast because of the way especially in the urban areas again this is mainly in the urban areas because of how the houses were even built it allowed for families to have the same sitting area so uh if the if this brother lived on this side and the other brother number 2 brother number 3 or the granddad the uncle you could have a central sitting place where you all eat out because also your siblings house is very accessible it is so easy to just pop in and eat because at the at the same time the food is also prepared your wife could have helped prepare her food so you just go there and it just made more sense the other thing about the kind the the way you talk about the consumption of food at the coast is also street food right and this comes with huda's example of the mahamri you were talking about but also just the fact that and i've seen this when i've been there there's a there's a much 
stronger street food culture at the coast than there is in most of the other places of the country, and especially not Nairobi. Maybe you could say a little bit about, about that. You also say this is part of the reason why fast food restaurants may not be as successful in the coast as they would be in other places. Could you give us a bit of an explanation as to why? There is usually a running joke that we say that in Nairobi, if you eat on the streets, you're going to be down for one week. That's a surety. I don't want to blame it wholly on capitalism, but I think capitalism plays a part in that there's this whole rat race and everyone wants to make money and it's basically just survive, survival for the fittest. And people will take shortcuts and people will do anything to make the shilling. So uh, a lot of the, it's not even necessarily sanitation because sanitation is a whole is a whole other equation. It's just the shortcuts that people take in the way some like those. I think there was a report on putting Panadol in Gideri to make it. Was it Panadol to some medication? I think it was Panadol so that it can. By lunchtime, it's ready. So you see, some of these things, and then the, the sanitation. There is a tendency for us folks in Nairobi to not really be. We don't. We don't honor food, especially when it's for business. At home, we might do it, but when we're cooking for other people in, let's say, in the street. We don't necessarily honor the food and we don't honor the person who's going to eat the food. So it's not an extension. We don't take it as an extension of ourselves. It's just, oh, I'm going to get my money and come home. And I'm going to get as much money as possible. So we'll add blue band and flour to milk so that we can sell a whole large amount of milk. And sanitation also plays a role. But it's very different. This is the thing. When you go into the slum area in Nairobi, that's not street food, yeah? It's not necessarily what you will term as street food. If you go into the slum, Kibanda, you will eat food and you will not get sick because the, the turnover of the clients is very high, so the food does not stay. But if you go to some of these restaurants, you might get a stomach bug. So, so that's the thing. It comes down to it comes down to two things: sanitation and our lack of honor, if I might say. So it's a lack of honor. But in the coast, there is, from my observation, when someone is cooking for you, they're cooking for you. They don't have to have met you. They just know I'm cooking for this person. And so you feel like the cook extended some sort of love to you you know when you eat really nice food and this person gave you and it's you didn't pay too much for it because let me tell you i I went to nairobi hospital and i asked for a samosa outside and it was 250 and it just baffled me that's the thing you feel like there's so much love coming out of it because number one this person didn't try to con you number two the food tasted how home food would taste. And number three, it was a large meal. It was not, they didn't try and cheat you out of the size. You know, the way sometimes in Nairobi you eat and the size is very small. The, the food is is quite a lot. You'd be, you'd be so full, uh, which is uh, something that I also like is because the food is a lot, it allows you to share with someone else. 
And I like the whole aspect of, which, which I'm not used to, but I'm trying to get used to, where you eat on the same plate. So no one is, of course, no one is poisoning you. And it also forces you because if we are sharing the same plate, our hands, that means we also have to strike up a conversation. There's no way we are sharing the same plate and just staying mom. Like you're just chewing and looking at your plate. It's not your plate. The plate is in the middle. So you have, so if you go to uh, maybe your neighbor's house and they've invited you and you're sharing a plate with one of their family members or one of their friends, then you have to strike up a, a conversation and you have to be cordial and you have to be nice. And by being nice, they also become nice towards you. And then you just strike up a friendship. And that that's the whole communal aspect of food. The coast people, obviously, they make food for themselves. But then the coast is known as a tourist destination, right? So for both attracting both foreign and, and local tourists. And you have highlighted the centrality of food to, to the tourism sector. I saw that you quoted uh, Anthony Wekesa's PhD, and he says, food is one of the most important guest attraction destination elements, while others have said that food acts either as the primary or secondary trip motivator. One of the things you've talked about in the paper in this regard, which I wasn't really aware of, is that there's a Lamu food festival, there's a Mombasa food festival. You talk about how food festivals are emerging. I have never heard of them. So tell us about these festivals. What what are they doing and what's the purpose and what are they being able to achieve? The food festivals, I must give it to the coastal community, is their ability to be innovative when it comes to changes with time and technology. And the goal is usually to preserve their culture. So food festival was so that they could share what they have with other people and then educate them so that we don't end up with pilau njeri. So you cook pilau the right way. You come and taste it and you come and show you how it is made. What it has done is it has allowed history to be recorded in more than one community, which I think is quite smart. So if, let's say, someone, some crazy person comes and decides to eradicate the whole of the, the coast or Mombasa sinks, God forbid. You still have guys from Nairobi who attended some of these food festivals that have these recipes in their head and in their mind. And the other thing that I also like is the way they've used social media to sell their food festivals and to attract visitors and to encourage a lot of young chefs. We're, we're seeing a lot of young chefs coming online and sharing their recipes on top of other things they will do like this one would be a beauty influencer this one would just be a lifestyle influencer but they still want to share part of the culture and uh, I think uh, this is their way uh, of taking back taking back their culture and kind of cementing it in the threads of history that it's never forgotten. So you have it. What I really admire about Lamu food festivals and Mombasa food festivals and the vloggers and the setting up of online communities, because now the coastal community has, I think, one of the largest online communities that is just trying to delve into their culture. And it goes beyond. You see, I can tell for us uh, on the other side of Kenya, we are delving so much into our politics 
or who are we as a community who was the who are like the hierarchy of the community etc we are not looking at food as being very central to how your community lived how your community survived how your community was able to adapt so i think that is something that we also need to learn from them wonderful and i think that's a very good point to end the show thank you maria for joining me on the kenyanist thank you that marks the end of our show today thank you for listening in case you have any questions comments please contact us at www.thekenyanist.com reach us via social media using the handle at the kenyanist you can also contact us on the same platforms for guest and topic recommendations we are grateful for your continued support. You can help the podcast grow by rating us wherever you get your podcast and sharing it with others who may find the topics in our discussions interesting. Until next time, goodbye.